a, a fairly quick overview um, of the Old Testament, of the expectation of the Messiah coming, um, and try and get ourselves in the mindset of what Israel was experiencing and all those kinds of things. But um, before we get into that, I just want to say, um, I, I really, really love Christmas. And uh, a lot of the times I think we can sort of feel guilty about like all the things that Karen was talking about. It's like, well, Christmas is only about the birth of Christ and we can't enjoy the presence and we can't. It, all of those things are a blessing from the Lord, right? That we give and receive gifts, that we get to decorate our house, that we get to put up a tree. All of those things are wonderful, right? A few extra days off. Um, Joe in his extremely ugly sweater at Awana's on Wednesday, right? I mean, we do all of these things. We go to parties. We have extra feasts. Like, these are good things, and they're blessings from the Lord. But a lot of the times, we can sort of like, oh, should I really be enjoying these things? Isn't Christmas only about the coming of Jesus? And we can tie all of those things in, right? We can see that all of those gifts are true and good, and we enjoy them because of Jesus, right? Without Christ... We, we might enjoy those things very temporarily, but they wouldn't fulfill us, right? At the end of the Christmas season, it's almost like a depression would set in. But if we do those in conjunction with knowing Jesus, he is our Savior, um, these are good things. We also recognize that some people don't, like, Christmas is a really hard time. Maybe the stress or, like, the financial burden of trying to buy those gifts or maybe childhood memories. It's just like, there's a lot of people who don't enjoy this time of the year. And whether, no matter which side of that you're on, the only way in which we wouldn't enjoy, or the, the reason behind either of those, um, is if we forget that Christ is the reason that we are celebrating all of the time, um, it, it is a, it's tempting to fall into the ditch on either side of the road, right? It's tempting to only care about the presence and only care about those things, and it's also tempting to see it as, this is no good, like, I'm tired of the festivities, like, just get me back to normal life. Um, but when we keep Christ at the center, then no matter where we are, no matter what our life has been, no matter what Christmas has been in the past, we can enjoy this time of year when we focus it back on the birth of Christ. Now, this is a hard thing to do, right? Because we live on this side of the cross, right? In history, we, we like to talk about Advent and we like to talk about, well, this is the anticipation of the coming of Christ. But the reality is, is that he, he's already come. And so we, we, we talk about that, but it's hard for us. We don't have the same level of excitement and expectation that Israel had 2,000 years ago. Because we, we know the reality. And so this morning, what I want us to do is sort of look through the Old Testament, look, look and see, and try and put ourselves in the mindset of Israel before the Messiah has come, so that we can at least try to have a better and a deeper appreciation for the coming of Jesus. It's hard to do in our mindset, but I think if we can look at what Israel was promised and what they were expecting and all of the different people throughout the Old Testament and all of the hope that comes and then the letdown, that we can, we can really be, begin to understand what it was like, what the, that anticipation looked like. So we're going to start at the beginning, right? Genesis 1, page 1 of your Bible this idea, right, that Adam and Eve, they are created, and they are created in perfection. Before they eat from the fruit, right, they are walking with God in the garden. I mean, with him physically, they're with him per in perfect fellowship. There is no disconnect. There is no sin. This is a perfect relationship 
that they have with their creator. And it's a beautiful thing. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when they sin, right, when they do the one thing that God commanded them not to do, which was to eat of that tree, right? There's one tree in all of the garden that they cannot eat from. And because their desire to be like God is there, they eat of it, right? They commit to sin. And there's something really interesting that happens in these first couple of chapters. Before sin enters into the world, God gives Adam and Eve some tasks, right? He says, go out, I want you to tend to the garden. And then he, before Eve comes along, he gives Adam this really interesting task that we're going to see throughout all of the things that we look at this morning. And I would really challenge you, if you've never, um, first of all, the Bible is not like these separated books. The Bible, Genesis is not its own thing, right? The book of Exodus is not its own thing. The Bible is one long story, and it's all interconnected. And there's all of these things that happen over and over and over again in Scripture. And there's things that draw us back to Genesis. There's things that draw us back to the covenants that, that connect with each other all the way through Scripture. And there's something really interesting that happens. God tells Adam, I want you to name all of the creatures. So God names Adam. Why? Because he has control over him. He is the dominant figure in that. He is the one who is setting the agenda. And so Adam then, in, in a shadow, in a likeness of God, is then said, you are then to have dominion over these animals. This idea, if you've never noticed this string of thing happening through the Old Testament, it's a wonderful thing. It happens over and over again. That when we name something... That means that we are in control, that we rule over that thing. I mean, how many of you named your children? All of you, right? If you had kids, you named them. Why? Because you are the dominant, you are the one in control over your children. It's, it's a sign. And so they are, Adam is given this task to name the animals and dominate them and not to be like them. And yet, in their sin, what happens? God has to go and kill animals, put the skins on them. They become like the animals. They're trying to be like God, and yet they become like the animals. And in God's glorious and his grace and his kindness and his mercy, immediately after Adam and Eve fall, what do we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14? Before he curses Eve, before he curses Adam, what does he do? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the promise, right? We call this the proto-euangelion, the first message of the gospel. And it comes moments after sin. God makes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very beginning, God makes a promise. There is somebody coming... Who is going to crush this serpent? You see, the serpent tempts them. The serpent, the beast, overtakes them, takes control of them, and they submit to him, and they sin. But God says, I will send somebody. The, the seed of Eve is coming to crush this, this beast that has tempted you into sin. From the very beginning, and from that point on, every generation is looking for that person. 
Can you imagine Adam and Eve, right? They're pushed out of the garden. God says, look, we don't want you to eat from the tree of life and live forever. So he, 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 he ejects them, right? They're, they're living out on their own. They're no longer in the garden of Eden. Can you imagine what Adam and Eve are thinking at that point? Okay, God has made us this promise. We better start having some kids, right? The seed, my, your seed, Eve, is going to be the one to crush. If there is ever a chance for us to get back into that garden, to get back into that relationship, it's our seed that's going to do that. So the very next chapter, right? Cain and Abel are born. And you can imagine. You see, we, we don't get a lot of context. All we get is they're born, they conflict, Cain kills Abel. But can you imagine Adam raising these two boys? If you were Adam and you were given that promise, what do you think you would be teaching those boys every moment of every day? God made a promise that my seed, that the seed of your mom is going to crush the head of the serpent. We want back in the garden and it's up to you two boys to do it. That must be what he's thinking, right? We have to venture outside of scripture a little bit. But it's not, it's, it's not out of norm to think that this is what Adam is thinking. There's two boys. You, you, there's, it's two versus one. You guys are going to win this fight. God has made us a promise. So I'm going to teach you. I'm going to raise you up to know what it means to fight evil. To know what it means to overcome the animals and the beast. And what happens? Is that what happens? Do Cain and Abel join forces like Captain Planet, right? And they're together and they're going to go and they're going to find this serpent and they're going to kill him? No. You see, Cain falls under the prey of evil. And instead of crushing the head of that serpent, he crushes the head of his own brother. And it doesn't take long before humanity spirals down into evil and despair. The first generation after Adam, a brother kills brother. For what? Jealousy. So Cain is kicked out. He's put, he's put to the side. And then what happens? I mean, I, once again, put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve. What do you think? They're th like, what? what happened here? These were the guys who were supposed to do it. God promised us. What's going on? And if you can pretend like you don't know how the story goes, if you read the end of chapter 4, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. To Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. If you didn't know what happened after that, there's a lot of hope there. Right? Okay. Cain and Abel come, but they're not the ones. But here comes Seth. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Maybe Seth is the one. Maybe he's the one to come and crush the head of the serpent. And then we get to chapter 5. And how many of you love to read Genesis chapter 5? Name after name, year, this, they lived this long, they had this many kids, and then they died. And they lived this long, and they had this many kids, and then they died. And we look at chapter 5, we're like, ah, oh, we can skip that. That's not important. What is, what's happening next? Where's the next part of the story? Chapter 5 is vitally important to understanding what is going on. Because what is the consequence of their sin? From the very beginning, what did God promise? If you sin, death is the consequence. Is Seth the one to win? Look at chapter 5, verse 5. 
though this is this is Adam, right? Thus all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died over and over and over again. The seeds of Eve who were supposed to be coming to crush the serpent die. Why? Because they fall to sin, every single one of them. Generation after generation, other than Enoch, right? And I don't know what in the world is going on there. He is the only one outside of Adam who it says he walked with God. Another day, right? I don't know. I don't know what's happening with him. He doesn't die. God just takes him, right? But generation after generation after generation... Seed of Eve, the seed of Eve, over and over and over again. They, they are born, they face evil, and they lose, and they die over and over again. But then there's hope. Here comes Noah. Have you ever noticed this in chapter 5? Because Probably not, because we don't read it. Verse 29, 28 and 29, right? Lamech had lived 182 years and he fathered a son and he called his name Noah saying, this is in Lamech's mind, this is in every generation's mind. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He thinks, Lamech looks at Noah and thinks he's going to be the one to reverse the curse. He's going to be the one to come and crush the head of the serpent. This is what every generation is looking for. Have you ever read that verse? Have you ever noticed? Lamech looks at Noah and says, I have hope that he's going to do it. Why? Verse 9 of chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in that generation. Noah walked with God. Here's that phrase again. It's a phrase of righteousness. Noah is the hope of that generation. And what happens? He does a lot of really good things. He has faith. He builds an ark. This idea that God has told them, you need to, you need to be dominant over the animals. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that Noah dominated two of every kind of animal on the entire planet? He is upholding, he's living out what God commanded Adam to do, right? There's a lot of hope in Noah. Not only that, but if you look after the flood, we have the same language that God gives to Adam. One of the commands that God makes to Adam is, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What does he tell to Noah after the flood is over? Exact same thing. Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth it's chapter 9 verse 1 noah it's almost like a reset right noah is the him and his family the righteous he's following after god they're the only families on the earth maybe finally evil is stamped out but what happens at the end of chapter 9 Let's see. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and he became drunk and he laid uncovered in his tent. That's not real impressive, right? Noah gets drunk. 
He passes out naked. I mean, he, he sins. He falls prey to the serpent as every generation before him. And so the hope that rises up for Noah is squashed in the fact that he doesn't resist sin. We have his three boys, which in chapter 10, we see their generations, but we know yet again, they're born, they live, and they die. They're falling victim to sin. Our next major player is Abram, right? Before he becomes Abraham, and there's a promise given to him right at the beginning. In chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. In all the families of the earth, sorry, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's another generation there's more hope, right? You notice the, the, the difference in language? God gives this command to Adam and to Noah. You go out and multiply yourself. You go out and fill the earth. It's not working, right? The people are not, and finally God says, he doesn't, tell Ab- he doesn't tell Abram the same thing. He switches the way he speaks to people, right? He switches his covenant language and says, I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. There's a huge shift in this new covenant that we have with Abraham. That God is now doing the work. God is now doing the things that he wants to happen. And so Abraham, there's this hope. We don't even have to get out of chapter 12 before we see him sell his wife to the Pharaoh of Egypt. That's not good practice, men, right? You don't even need to be told that. We know that's not okay. And why does he do it? Because he's afraid that the Pharaoh will kill him. He doesn't trust in the Lord, right? There's a famine. He's going to go to Egypt because there's no, there's no food in the land of Canaan. He goes down to Egypt and he says, you are too beautiful. Now, if you're ever going to sell your wife, that's how you should start it, right? You're so beautiful that he will kill me when he sees you. Don't do it, right? But that's what he says, right? He doesn't trust in the Lord. That's not the only time he does it. You'd think he would learn. He does it again, right? Several chapters later, he sells her off again. Abraham does a lot of really good things, right? He has a lot of faith. We think of him. Hebrews calls him the father of faith, right? He takes Isaac up to the mountain, and he's ready to kill him because God told him to. He's got the knife in his hand, and I don't know how far down he's come with that, but he's there, and he's ready. And Abraham had a deep and abiding faith, but he also made a lot of really dumb mistakes. God promises him that a generation will come from him, and he doesn't wait, and he doesn't believe that. And he takes his wife's servant as his wife and has a child with her, right? He's not faithful to his wife on all kinds of different fronts. There was a lot of hope for him. But in certain aspects of Abraham's life, when he faces the serpent, he fails and he dies. And the hope that was in Abraham, it's let down again. But he has a son. His name is Isaac. 
And Isaac is probably the most passive character in all of the Old Testament. Everything that happens in Isaac's life, somebody does it to him. Abraham sends his servant out to find Isaac a wife while he just stays home, sits there and does nothing, right? His dad tries to kill him. He just passively lays on the altar. I mean, he's like a teenager, right? Youth who are up here. If your dad takes you to an altar and puts you down on it and gets a knife out, how many of you are just going to lay there? I guess he knows what he's doing. He just, he is a passive character. He has two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? And what do they do? Isaac just sits there. And this theme comes up again, right? See, Adam is tricked by the animal. He's overcome. He's supposed to dominate the animals, and he doesn't, and he's tricked, and he sins. What does Jacob do when he tricks his father? He puts on the skins of an animal, right? Isaac, this, this symbolism goes throughout all of the Bible, through the whole Old Testament. Isaac is tricked by Jacob, who is dressed up like an animal. See, Isaac is not our man. Jacob and Esau not our men, right? Esau is just like a buffoon. He's out doing his hunting, but he comes in and he gets tricked by Jacob. And Jacob, his life is just defined by tricking people. That's all he does. But if you remember this famous scene between Jacob and God, right? What does Jacob do? He wrestles with him. And God wins that fight because, of course... And this idea, right, this idea of naming shows up again. What does God do when he's looking at Jacob on the ground? Jacob has got a hold of his heel. What does he do? He gives him a new name. God dominates him. He is in control of him, right, because he is God and Jacob is just creation. And he looks at him and he gives him a new name. And if you ever noticed at that point, see, Jacob's name means heel grabber, right? He's a, he's a conniving sort of tricky guy. That's, he lives up to his name, and God renames him at the very next chapter we see that Jacob, with no tricks in play, goes out and meets his brother Esau, right? who he is afraid of, who he tricked out of his birthright on all fronts. So Jacob is renamed Israel, and Jacob has a whole slew of sons, right? Twelve to be exact. The fact that all 12 of these boys live to adulthood is unbelievable. Right? I mean, this is an era when people get eaten by bears and lions. I mean, people don't, all of their kids don't get to survive. Like this, that was, a, that was a, a reality that they lived in. And yet he has 12, and they all survive. And here we have another generation where there is hope in the youngest, right? In Joseph. There are so many connections to Joseph and Jesus, lots of these shadows, right? Lots of these tie-ins that come in. What do his brothers do to him? They throw him down in a pit to kill him. And then they say, well, we're not actually going to kill him. We'll just leave him down there to die. But Joseph is brought back out. Have you ever noticed, do you know how much they sold him for? It's almost the exact amount that Judah sells Jesus for. Joseph is a shadow of the Savior to come. And if you're looking, and once again, if you're reading the New Testament and you don't know the end of the story, you might look at Joseph and be like, maybe he's the one. He's he's, He's being obedient. We don't see any sin. We see him go to jail and he is righteous and he is unjustly imprisoned. 
But when his brothers come and ask for food, what does he do? He's dishonest. He lies. And so Joseph is not the Savior, right? A generation and generation after generation of hope. And yet, every single one of these people fails. So we come to Moses. And Moses takes a step in the right direction. He receives the law. This list of things in which, look, if you're, gonna, if you're going to be able to crush this serpent, here it is. Here's the list. Just do these things. And that's how you would resist evil. Moses can't even do it. He fails so miserably that he has to lead the people for 40 years in the desert, right? Because of his sin. Because he takes credit for something that God has done. Because his pride gets in the way. Because when he faces a serpent, many times he comes out victorious but it only takes one time of failure, and he is not capable of being the Messiah. And the list goes on and on, right? And we have Joshua, and he leads them into the land, and God gives them a command, and we see, wow, maybe Joshua is the one, the next generation has come, and he is doing a lot of good things, and he's following after the Lord, and he's being obedient. But God gives him a command to take the entire land. You look at Judges chapter 1, he doesn't do it. He doesn't lead the people in a way to be able to follow God's command. And then we have probably one of the scariest statements in all of the Bible at the end of the book of Judges. And then everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That is a recipe for disaster. Moses was given the law. They should be following it. That's how they're going to defeat the beast. That's how they're going to defeat the serpent. And they don't do it. They do whatever they want. And so the kings come. Right? Saul comes. That's not good. I mean, don't pick your leaders based on who's the tallest and the most handsome. Like, that doesn't ever work out in your favor, right? That's what Israel does. He is the tallest Benjamite. He is the most handsome, and he stands ahead above everybody else. And like, he must be the right guy. I mean, look at him, Right? And for a while, Saul does okay. But he, it doesn't take long before he is disobedient, before it is clear that he is not ruling over the serpent. And then we have David. Let's look at what, we, uh, what Antonio read this morning out of, oh no, sorry, that's Isaiah. Well, let's look at one thing in 2 Samuel, um, this promise that God makes to David. starting at the beginning of, of 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do that all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David has this idea. I'm going to build God a temple. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought my people out of Israel, my people of Israel out from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all of your enemies from, behind, from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will point a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offsprings after you. And you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's a lot of hope here. There's a lot of crushing of the serpent right david has been in charge of armies and has destroyed other nations for decades he has killed a lot of evil people and god says i'm going to i'm going to stop those people from oppressing you another generation with more hope that the messiah has come and yet we know the story we know that David fails miserably with Bathsheba. And he's not the one. Solomon comes along and he shows some promise, right? Because he asked Lord for wisdom, which was great and impressive. And if, and if any of us were faced with that decision, look, all the money, all the power in the world, what do you want? I want to know how to rule wisely. Many of us would not make that choice. He does, but the problem is he doesn't use it. He's given this wisdom, and he fails. No other king after him comes close. Many of the prophets hear from God, but none of them are given this title of Messiah. I would argue that Daniel is probably the closest character we have in the Old Testament to being this coming Messiah. Once again, if you look through the book of Daniel, you will see all of these threads going back. All of this connection between Daniel and Adam, where Adam failed with the food. What happens in chapter 1 of Daniel? He is tempted to eat something that God tells him not to, and he doesn't do it. Nebuchadnezzar tries to take control of him. I mean, how, how many of you know the story Right Of all, the, all of the great stories that happen. And how many of you, when you think of the fiery furnace, call them by their Hebrew name? We call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave them. That is not their name. Look at Daniel chapter 1. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to take control over them by giving them a new name, right? This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. 
Daniel shall be called Belteshazzar. Hananiah is called Shadrach. Mishael is called Mes- um, Meshkah. And Azariah shall be called Abednego. Meshach, right? I, I should know that. I don't know how I mispronounced the one name I've heard a million times in my life, right? And how often is Daniel referred to as Belteshazzar in the book of Daniel? Never again that I remember. You see, the evil one tries to take dominance over him by giving him a new name, and Daniel will not allow it. He, throughout the entire book of Daniel, he is doing the things that Adam was supposed to do and failed in. You ever thought about the fact that when he goes into the lion's den, he conquers, he dominates animals the way he is supposed to. In our sin, we fail to do this, and Daniel does it. But of course, Daniel is not our Savior, because what happens in the second half of Daniel that we don't understand even in the slightest, right? What does he see coming down from the clouds of heaven? The Son of Man. The Messiah, he sees a vision of it, and it's not him. We'll look at two last things, and then we'll be done this morning. Isaiah, this is where Antonio read from, right? Isaiah, chapter 9. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampled warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. For the, governor, the government shall be on his shoulders, and, he, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, Isaiah presents this message that God has given to him. And the people of Israel, their response is, when is he coming? I am so glad to hear the promise. And they are just waiting generation after generation after generation in anticipation. And they have been given hope over and over again. They see all of these great men of God who have faith, who walk with him. And at the end, they all fail. And Israel is Wondering, when is this man going to come? When is the Messiah going to come? Can you imagine the anticipation? The hope that swells up with a king like David, and then they watch him fall. It happens for thousands of years. And many of them are like Lamech, who looks at Noah and says, this is the one. He's come to reverse the curse. And they put their hope in a man 
And that man fails over and over again. Last thing to see this morning is Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, within them I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now here's the promise that we all love. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, God didn't forget what he promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. There is still coming somebody who can crush the head of that serpent, who will overcome evil completely, perfectly, and who will be the Messiah, and who will save the people of Israel. And that will be expanded to anybody who believes. You see, we have trouble with this because, once again, we live on this side of history. We live on this side of the cross. The Messiah has come and we don't understand the anticipation. And we don't understand the longing that Israel had for, you can argue, 4,000 years. At least 4,000 years, right? Generation after generation after generation. There is a man who shows promise and yet he fails. But God's promise is never broken. You see, we may not understand it. But we should count this as a blessing. Because what we understand that they didn't is that the Messiah has come. That he has lived a life of perfection. That every single time, every day, 20, 30, 50, however many times a day, the serpent came to him to tempt him to sin. Every time he was victorious. He never sinned in word thought, or deed. He was perfectly righteous. And he willingly stepped up onto a cross so that his sacrifice could apply that righteousness to everyone who believes in him. The only thing that God asks of us is to repent and believe, to ask God for forgiveness, right? To, to, to tell him of our sins, and ask him to bring about the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. You see, we might look at all of these passages and say, man, that's tough. I don't get it. Count it as a blessing because we know the Messiah and we know him intimately. And if you're here this morning, you say, I don't know him. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know Jesus. There is never a better time than right now. Bow your knee, ask God to forgive you, repent of your sins, and he will. God is faithful. That promise 
that he made, that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, that the seed of Eve is coming. He has come and he has done it and he has accomplished it so that you can be saved. You don't have to do it. Jesus did it for you. He's inviting you this morning to ask, to seek forgiveness from him and he will bring salvation into your heart. He will save you this very moment. That is the promise of God. That is the reason that we celebrate every year that Christ has come because the Messiah has arrived. He has lived. He has died and he has resurrected and we can be saved because of that truth. That is the glory of Christmas. That is the glory of who Jesus is and was because he is still alive, right? He is seated at the right hand of the father on his throne. He will never be kicked down from that. That is his place of power for all eternity. And that forgiveness is available to you. Repent and believe. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful that we don't have to live in this great anticipation, that we don't have to live every day wondering when is the Messiah coming? When are we going to be saved from all of this evil that is around us? Father, you have saved us from it. You have declared us righteous because of the work of Christ, and we are so grateful for this. God, help us to enjoy all of the many blessings that Christmas brings. That we can feast, that we can go to parties, that we can enjoy our friends and our family and invite people over and fellowship, and that you would be at the center of all of it. That we would never lose sight of the birth of Jesus as we celebrate, as we sing songs, as we enjoy. Lord, help us to remember that Christ has come and we are the benefactors. We are undeserving. And yet he has given us salvation. Father, we are so grateful for your plan, for Christ's obedience, and for the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So every week.